Hi, and welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. I'm Harry Stevens, and I'll be your host. Today, we're doing a third of four introductory episodes leading up to Operation Barbarossa, the German invasion of the USSR. This episode, we'll be looking at the history of the Soviet Union from the end of the Russian Civil War to the beginning of the Second World War. The Russian Civil War raged from 1917 to 1923 and was disastrous for the former Russian Empire. Bolshevik forces clashed with anti-communist groups, foreign expeditionary forces, and nationalists wanting to establish their own independent states. The war claimed millions of lives, both civilian and soldier, and decimated the Russian economy. Many prominent experts and businessmen fled the country, taking vital machinery and irreplaceable experience with them. Much of what remained was destroyed in the war itself. By the end of the war, the victorious Soviet Union found itself a pariah state, economically and diplomatically isolated from the rest of the world. Worsening things, Vladimir Lenin, longtime leader of the Bolshevik Party, was growing increasingly ill. In March 1923, he suffered a stroke, and although he somewhat recovered, his condition began to worsen again, and he died on January 21, 1924. Loyal citizens of the USSR were in full and open mourning, whether they were true believers in the Bolshevik cause or whether they feared reprisal from the police. Lenin received a massive state funeral, and people from all across the USSR fled into Moscow, the new capital, to see the body. Eventually, Lenin's body would be preserved and placed on display in Moscow's Red Square, where it remains to this day. Behind the scenes, however, Lenin's death inflamed power struggles within the party. Tensions were already high as prominent Bolsheviks clashed over how the USSR should be organized, but Lenin had largely been able to keep things together. With Lenin out of the picture, there was nothing to prevent these disagreements from escalating to open political warfare, and chief among the players in this power struggle were Leon Trotsky and Joseph Stalin. Leon Trotsky was born to a wealthy Ukrainian Jewish family in 1879. His birth name was Lev Davidovich Bronstein. He began revolutionary activity as a teenager and quickly turned to Marxism. He spent the next two decades or so engaged in political agitation, imprisoned, or in exile, which is something we'll see in the lives of the most prominent Bolsheviks. Notably, though, around 1902, he started using the name Leon Trotsky. Reportedly, he took the name from a guard he had in prison in Odessa, what's now Ukraine. He played a major role in the Russian Revolution and was the prime force in the organization and leadership of the Red Army during the Russian Civil War. Trotsky was also regarded as a brilliant writer and theorist in leftist doctrine, but could also show himself to be ruthless and violent when need be. Lenin himself supported Trotsky to secede him, and by all indications, Trotsky should have taken over after Lenin's death. Unfortunately for Trotsky, Joseph Stalin would intervene, and things would certainly not go according to plan. Joseph Stalin was born Yosef Jugashvili in Gori, and was today Georgia. Born in 1878, his father was an abusive drunk who beat Yosef and his mother and eventually drove them out of their home. As a child, Yosef proved himself to be intelligent and talented, and his mother, who wanted him to be a priest, had him attend an Orthodox seminary. Eventually, though, Yosef lost interest in his seminarial studies and picked up an interest in Marxism. He eventually declared himself an atheist and in April 1899 left the seminary. From there, the man who would become Stalin, like Trotsky and Lenin, would spend years in political activism, imprisoned, or in exile. However, Stalin, unlike Lenin or Trotsky, was much more directly involved in the dirty work of the revolution. Stalin and his gang ran protection rackets to extort local businesses, rob banks, organize murders, and even kidnap children in order to sow chaos and acquire funds for the Bolshevik party. 
Many of the prominent Bolsheviks found Stalin's personality, relative lack of intellectualism, and his methods unseemly, but believed them necessary for the revolution. Stalin, proving useful to prominent Bolshevik leaders, rose to the ranks of the party, eventually becoming a sort of enforcer. Around 1912, he took up the last name Stalin. These pseudonyms, common among political revolutionaries, served a few purposes. It offered some minimal protection against arrest and allowed those would-be revolutionaries to take up names they thought suitable for their grand purpose. Lenin was also a pseudonym, his birth name was Ulyanov, and it potentially came from a powerful river named Lina, where Lenin spent time while in exile. Trotsky, we've already heard. Stalin's comes from the Russian word for steel, stop, and Stalin is often translated as man of steel. During the Russian Revolution, Stalin was also prominent, but his role was more focused on direct action closer to the ground, involved in the bloody business that Lenin and Trotsky preferred not to think too deeply about. During the Russian Civil War, both Stalin and Trotsky found themselves elevated to command. As we saw, Trotsky assumed overall command of the Red Army, supervising events from on high and rushing around to patch up bad situations. Stalin largely spent 1918 and 1919 in southern Russia, where he assumed military command as well as trying to maintain Soviet power in the area. In particular, he was tasked with making sure Soviet troops had enough food, and this was done by enforcing harsh appropriations quotas on farmers. He was not squeamish in executing these appropriations, but had the suspect of hiding food or supporting the white Russians tortured and shot without trial, but had farms and villages burned down to send a message. Much of his activities were centered in and around the city of Zaritsyn, which was later renamed Stalingrad, supposedly in his honor. By 1920, the Bolshevik forces had eliminated most organized resistance to communist rule in Russia itself. Moving on, Soviet Russia would direct its efforts at retaking breakaway parts of the former empire in Europe and Central Asia and hoping to spread the communist revolution as far as possible. In early 1919, war had broken out between the newly established Second Polish Republic and the also newly established Soviet Russian state. Both claimed land in Belarus and Ukraine, and Polish campaigns beginning in February 1919 had pushed Soviet forces out of many of the contested areas. But by 1920, Soviet energy was no longer split in so many directions and could focus efforts on Poland. Polish offensives as late as spring 1920 saw some success, even capturing Kiev from Soviet forces. But the growing might of the Red Army was more than the new Polish forces could withstand. A Soviet offensive led by Mikhail Tukhachevsky retook all Polish gains of the past year and began to capture core Polish territory. By August, Tukhachevsky's men were closing in on Warsaw, the Polish capital. Warsaw offered the last major line of defense in Poland against the Red Army, and if Warsaw's defenses were overrun, it seemed perfectly possible that Bolshevik troops would keep up the advance into Germany and Western Europe, hoping to spark communist revolutions and bring the Red Banner to all of Europe. In fact, this was something that Lenin and Trotsky were enthusiastic believers in. For his part, Stalin was unconvinced that the Red Army had enough military strength for such an endeavor, and was far less optimistic that the workers of Central and Western Europe would rise up and join the Red Forces. Stalin believed that nationalism would act as a powerful glue holding the workers and the proletariat forces of Western and Central Europe to their governments. Stalin had been transferred to the Polish theater in May of 1920 and became fixated on taking the major city of Lviv, also called Lviv, also called Lemberg, also called Lvov. It's kind of a mess, and it just depends on whoever was holding it, whether they were Polish, Ukrainian, Russian, German, etc. In early August, Stalin, who was still assaulting Lviv, ignored orders to move his men to Warsaw to assist Tukhachevsky's forces in sieging and capturing the city. 
Even so, it seemed that the Tukhachevsky's northwestern front could still take the Polish capital. But the events of August 12th to August 25th would prove this decisively wrong. This two-week span and the events therein would come to be known as the Miracle on the Vistula, in addition to the much less descriptive Battle of Warsaw. During this battle, Polish troops, backed up against the wall, fought with incredible bravery, but this was buffered by Red Army exhaustion and the vital fact that Polish cryptographers had deciphered many of the codes the Red Army used to communicate, and were thus able to monitor and preempt Soviet movements and attacks. With this knowledge, Polish forces were able to not only successfully defend Warsaw, but then counterattack, throwing the exhausted Red Army troops into a chaotic retreat. Later, both Lenin and Trotsky would blame Stalin's purposeful disobedience for the loss, and this thoroughly contributed to Stalin's dislike of Trotsky. This is in addition to the political differences. While both Trotsky and Stalin were Marxists, in fact, Marxist-Leninists, Marxist-Leninism being Lenin's particular take on Marxism as adapted to work in Russia, where much more the country was agricultural than in Germany or England, where Marx developed his theories, Trotsky and Stalin had significant differences. Significantly, Trotsky was a supporter of a permanent world revolution, where the Soviet Union would constantly be expanding and were fueling revolutions in foreign nations, trying to spark communist uprisings. Stalin instead supported the idea of socialism in one country, which said that the Soviet Union should focus on building itself up and strengthening socialism domestically before trying to spark revolutions and bring the whole world under communism. It's important to note that Stalin did believe in spreading communism. However, he didn't believe this should be done in such a rapid, outright, and a reckless manner as Trotsky did. Additionally, at the time Trotsky and Stalin struggled for power, Trotsky opposed what was called National Economic Policy, or NEP, while Stalin supported it. The NEP was an economic plan put in place during and after the Russian Civil War that allowed for some level of individual entrepreneurship and markets designed to help repair the Soviet economy after the war. Trotsky, belonging to a left-wing school of communism, which is saying something, believed the government should manage all state and enter- all enterprises and all productivity, while Stalin felt that while the government should have a great deal of control, some private management, at least in the short term, wasn't a bad idea. Stalin's theory of government also included a far smaller place for democracy within the decision-making process than Trotsky's ideal system. These large differences, coupled with standing grudges from the war and both desire for power, and with the match lit, or at least allowed to simmer more with Lenin's death, placed Stalin and Trotsky into direct conflict. While Stalin was not the orator or the intellectual powerhouse that Trotsky was, he was brutally effective and utterly pragmatic. Stalin was acutely aware of his lack of prestige and his deficiencies compared to Trotsky, and so he enlisted respectable Bolsheviks like Gregory Zinoviev or Lev Kamenev to attack Trotsky, while Stalin positioned himself as a moderate choice. Trotsky's star had also suffered a fall, as his ideas of a permanent worldwide revolution had been seriously deflated by the defeat of every revolutionary uprising in Europe, aside, of course, from the USSR. Through a series of sophisticated political maneuvers, Trotsky was gradually driven out of power. In 1925, he was forced to resign his leading role in the Red Army. In 1926, he was forced out of the Politburo, which was the highest Soviet policy-making department. In 1928, he was exiled to Kazakhstan, and a year after that, exiled to Turkey. 
Along the way, Stalin had also turned on Zinoviev and communists. The pair had soured on Stalin in late 1924 and early 1925, and had drawn closer to Trotsky. But Stalin, in no small part thanks to Zinoviev and communist efforts, had grown too powerful to stop. He used this newfound power, as well as statements by Zinoviev and communists themselves, to alienate and weaken them. The tripartite of Zinoviev, Kamenev, and Trotsky, known as the United Opposition, pretty much made up the all the remaining power of left communism in the Soviet political structure. Stalin had this group declared treasonous, and members could not be a part of the Soviet Communist Party, and eventually membership was altogether made illegal. By 1928, Stalin had essentially crippled the left communist factions in their entirety. With his left flank clear, Stalin then turned on the right. While they had been allies in combating Trotsky and his supporters, to Stalin they had outlived their usefulness. The right opposition, as Stalin called them, were largely made up of those who supported the maintaining or the expansion of the NEP. They include major figures like Nikolai Bukharin, Alexei Raikov, or Mikhail Tomsky. They balked at Stalin ending the NEP in 1928 and attempted to put pressure on the Soviet government to have it reinstated. But Stalin would not budge and easily use his extensive power to force right-leaning elements to capitulate to his will. By 1930, Stalin had eliminated both the right and the left in his party and had centralized power around himself and his clique, and he could now focus on policy. While Stalin was a great fan of propaganda, he himself did not suffer from any real delusions about the USSR's place in the world. He knew that the USSR was a backwards nation. It had few friends and lots of enemies. For it to survive, it would need to rapidly industrialize its economy. In 28, Stalin launched the first of what would become known as the Five-Year Plans, with this goal in mind. The Five-Year Plans were pretty much what they sounded like. They were a top-down economic plan spaced out for a five-year period that would involve the entire energy and focus of the USSR directed towards a few goals. In Stalin's first five-year plan, as I said, launched in 1928, the focus was on heavy industry and agricultural collectivization. It's also interesting to note that the five-year plan was something run entirely by the government, which, as you remember, was something that Stalin had opposed and Trotsky had supported. But now the table seemed to have been flipped, at least as far as Stalin was concerned. Regarding industrialization, there were several serious problems. Maybe the largest was that the USSR lacked much of the necessary expertise and machinery to create factories. This had to be purchased from Europe and America, usually secretly because the relations between the Soviet governments and those in Europe and America were terrible, and oftentimes the USSR was under embargoes. So Soviet purchases were often conducted via shell corporations or through a few levels of obfuscation. These purchases in any form required hard currency, and the Soviet Union was lacking in hard currency. To get this, the Soviet Union would need to exploit the raw materials which it was so rich in. So that's mineral resources, oil, and almost especially grain. Areas like Ukraine had been the breadbasket of the Russian Empire, and most of the Soviet population still remained farmers. Prior to the five-year plan, most farmers in the USSR continued to work their land much as they had done for hundreds of years. They worked their own small plots with traditional methods, without modern technologies or techniques, and usually produced at a subsistence level. That is, they produced enough food for them and their families. Stalin believed that by collectivizing these small farms, that is, by taking many of them and binding them together and to be worked on communally by groups of people, 
they could produce more grain with fewer people. The government would then take most of this grain for allocation and export and sale to get the hard currency to buy the expertise and machinery to industrialize. And then the excess farming population that was no longer needed to work could then be moved to the cities to work in the new factories. This plan was resisted by farmers who had a long history of distrusting any government and thought that these collective farms, or they're called the, the kolkos, would do nothing for them. Resistance to collectivization was common, especially among the kulaks, a general term of the wealthier peasants. Kulaks tended to own land and hire others to work their land and had some form of side business like money lending or having a mill or a tannery or something. And they had the most to lose for collectivization. But the issue was not up for any sort of debate, and collectivization and grant appropriation were shrugged through, even though it often meant a lower crop yield for a few years and large-scale grant appropriation. Through a mix of propaganda, force, intimidation, and some genuine ideological fervor, the first five-year plan was a great success. Even taking into account the Soviet predilection for exaggeration for propaganda purposes, the plan was a smashing success, reportedly achieving its goals a year early. Capital goods production was up nearly 160%, consumer goods production up nearly 90%, and industrial capacity had increased by 120%. Seeing the success of this first five-year plan, Stalin quickly launched another one in 1933, the second five-year plan. This plan continued its focus on heavy industry and agricultural collectivization, while also attempting to upgrade and update military industry and infrastructure. Now we really do have to look at the horrendous atrocities and the abuses of human rights that were a core part of the USSR, from its beginning, in fact, and were also integral in the development of the Soviet economy. Soviet repression of those deemed political enemies dated back to the Russian Civil War, where Bolshevik forces would brutally put down any resistance to their rule on the territories they conquered. This consisted of extrajudicial imprisonment, robbery, and execution. Following the Russian Civil War, repression actually increased in scale in some regards, as the Soviet Union attempted to make incredibly rapid changes to the fundamental fabric of Soviet society without any regard to the impacts on people, and often with outright malice towards certain groups of enemies. One essential feature of the Soviet economy and of Soviet repression was the gulag. The word gulag itself is an acronym from the Russian term Main Directorate of Camps, as well as acting as prisons, they were used as labor camps, where prisoners could be quote-unquote rehabilitated to political orthodoxy, while also being forced to do backbreaking work in awful conditions. Labor camps had existed under the Tsar's system, but they were expanded and made much more essential under Soviet rule, beginning under Lenin's administration, but even more so under the Stalinist regime. Typically, these gulags were located in the more desolate and isolated regions of the Soviet Union, and at least 14 million people passed through the camps in one form or another from 1929 to 1953, and at least 1.7 of those 14 million died due to the, their treatment in the gulags. Essentially slave laborers, they were often used to create infrastructure projects or build the beginnings of cities in remote areas that they couldn't get anyone else to move to or work in for the five-year plans, and were responsible for what are today many of Russia's major cities in the Ural Mountain region or in Siberia or the Far East. Another feature of Soviet repression in the pre-World War II era and even afterwards was the complete liquidation of whole social groups thought to be counter-revolutionary. You'll see the term liquidation a lot in both Soviet and German records, and as darkest meaning, it means massacre, means killing. Soviet liquidation for... Uh, 
in these terms, sometimes it means killing. Sometimes it means completely uprooting and destroying any political power base or economic power they might have had. So it varies on case, and I'll try and specify. Oftentimes it includes a mix thereof, though. So this liquidation until the murder of large portions of the population, particularly concentrated on certain ethnic groups or social groups, and the removal of these groups from their historical homeland and the theft of their possessions. A prominent example, between 1917 and 1933, the Soviet regime conducted a large campaign of what they called de-Cossackization. The Cossacks were, are, a socio-ethnic group that had played an important role in maintaining the Tsar's authority. It acted as sort of some of the fiercest troops and were instrumental in putting down rebellions and putting the fear of God, so to speak, into Russian peasants during the Tsarist regime. The Cossacks had long lived along the Don River and the Kuban region of southern Russia, and during the Russian Civil War, they had also been pretty much loyal to the Tsarist regime and the white Russian forces, so they were definitely, to the Red Army and the Soviet Union, an enemy. To remedy the situation, hundreds of thousands of Cossacks were executed or deported, and Cossack culture was suppressed. Children were taken away from parents. People were forced to not speak their native languages or practice their native customs and were ruthified, basically. Made made Russian. Another act of oppression was the campaign of Kulaks, known as de-Kulakization. If you'll remember, the Kulaks were the wealthier farmers who tended to oppose communism and agricultural collectivization. For this, they were branded enemies of the state, or parasites, and they were subjected to largely the same treatment as the Cossacks. Between 1930 and 1934 alone, at least 2.4 million Kulaks were deported mainly to Siberia, oftentimes the Gulaks, though many were often sent to northern Russia or Central Asia. Of those, hundreds of thousands would, would die, malnutrition, dehydration, or simply execution. Perhaps most representative of Soviet apathy, verging on malice for their own citizens, was the Holodomor, occurring between 1922 and 1923, and literally meaning murder by starvation. The Holodomor was a largely man-made famine that killed millions of people, especially centered in Central Asia and Ukraine. The exact causes are not totally clear, at least not in how much responsibility any given cause has. And that's also muddied by multiple layers of obfuscation and propaganda by the Soviet Union and other scholars. But modern academic consensus points to an extremely high level of Soviet responsibility for the famine, particularly its severity. 1932 saw poor weather conditions and a poor harvest, but at the same time, rapid and reckless agricultural collectivization through farming that year into complete chaos. Furthermore, the Soviet authorities aggressively and relentlessly appropriated crops from already struggling farmers, punishing anyone who tried to keep grain, and at one point making quote-unquote hoarding grain a capital offense. This activity was largely concentrated, as I said, in Ukraine, which was a breadbasket, and also a seat of some anti-Soviet activity, as well as parts of Central Asia, where the Soviet authorities were trying to force traditional nomadic people into a sedentary lifestyle. The extent of starvation in heavily Ukrainian-populated areas, as well as the beliefs of Soviet officials that Ukrainian nationalism represented a threat to the USSR, has led many prominent scholars to include that the government purposely took advantage of the situation to eliminate opposition by 
insisting on enforcing appropriations and denying aid to the Ukrainian peasants, and that the Holodomor constitutes a genocide, therefore. Estimates of death vary, but conventional estimates place it above 3 million, and some go far higher. Alongside these acute events, Soviet repression also took the form of near-constant suppression of ethnic and religious culture with the goal of eliminating any perceived threats to the party. Non-Russian languages were often discouraged from being spoken, while religious institutions as a whole were repressed in service of state atheism. Russification was also conducted via the colonization of parts of the Soviet Union. Many of those ethnic and cultural minorities who were murdered or forced to move to desolate areas were replaced by ethnic Russian settlers, who then severely affected the demography of those nations, which we can see today its after effects in Ukraine as well as on the Baltic states. Although imprisonment and executions were rife and constant throughout the history of the USSR, they largely reached a peak during the late 1930s in what's become known as the Great Purge. Although Stalin had systemically and thoroughly eliminated nearly all major political opposition to his reign during the 1920s and early 1930s, he still was paranoid about internal betrayal. His suspicions were seemingly confirmed by a high level of opposition to agricultural collectivization and the assassination of a longtime Bolshevik Sergei Kirov. This was then used as evidence to launch massive nationwide campaigns to seek out supposed spies and traitors who wanted to bring down the USSR. These campaigns affected every level, every strata of the Soviet society, from the highest levels of government to artists down to ordinary people. Imprisonments and deportations were also vastly stepped up. The Great Purge is often defined as the events between 1936 and 1938, but in some sectors, such as the military, purges continued for years afterwards, up to, almost right up to, the beginning of Operation Barbarossa in 1941. According to internal Soviet records, at least 682,000 people were shot in 1937 and 1938 alone, meaning during this period, this two-year period, about 1,000 people a day were shot by their own government. And understanding that these numbers are incomplete and don't take into account deaths by gulag or other sort of deaths, most scholars pin the death toll of the Great Purge at a million or even much higher than that. Contrary to what you might assume, the purge hit the powerful in Soviet society hardest. Since we're looking at this podcast largely through the lens of military history, let's look at the impact on the military. During the purge, three of five marshals, 13 and 15 army commanders, eight and nine admirals, and similar numbers of other high positions were either dismissed, imprisoned, or shot. Many of those dismissed were innovators, and they were replaced by political flunkies with little skill or imagination far more dedicated to maintaining the party line than creating and maintaining a strong military. At the same time, Stalin undertook a large-scale expansion of the Red Army, meaning that all these new Red Army units had almost no officers of any quality to lead them. Between 1937 and 1938 alone, the number of officers in the Red Army grew by 56%, and the size of the army as a whole tripled between 1937 and 1941. Throughout Soviet society and the military, creativity and innovation were largely discouraged in one way or another. Failed innovations and designs were often pointed to as evidence of quote-unquote wrecking or sabotage rather than a natural part of development. By the end of the Great Purge, the Soviet military had been well described as a stumbling colossus, huge and powerful but unwieldy and poorly led. 
Following the end of the Russian Civil War, the Red Army had largely been limited to short campaigns and border battles in the Far East, frequently against insurrectionary groups, although the USSR fought various Chinese states on a few occasions and later Japan. Stalin and many other prominent Soviets certainly had ambitions to the West, though. Recapturing the lost parts of the Russian Empire and spreading communist power further into Europe was certainly a goal for Stalin, but given the USSR's delicate state in the 1920s and 1930s, it remained something of a pipe dream. However, the rise of Nazi Germany would provide the USSR with an unlikely and temporary ally. As I mentioned back in my episode on the Weimar Republic and the rise of Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union and Germany had worked together before. The pair had inked several agreements in the 1920s to cooperate on military development and trade. But as anti-communism grew in Germany, most of these agreements were halted, and by the early years of the Nazi regime, relations had almost totally soured between the two powers. At the same time, the USSR was gaining a modicum of acceptance by Western European powers, partly because many of them had expected Bolshevik rule to collapse within a few years, and were now seeing that such a situation was not likely to occur. And they decided that it was better to get on their good side than lose out on the opportunities that the USSR offered. The rise of Nazi Germany also forced many Western powers to consider the USSR as an erstwhile ally against Hitler. The Franco-Soviet Treaty of Mutual Assistance, signed in 1935, is a notable example of this in practice. The USSR and Nazi Germany began to build ideological alliances to combat the other. For the Soviet Union, it was the Comintern, short for Communist International. Led by the USSR, it included various communist parties around the world that advocated for the spread of world communism, and eventually directly against fascism, that is to say, Nazi Germany. As a direct counter, Nazi Germany created the Anti-Comintern Pact in 1936, which initially just consisted of Germany and Japan, but later included Italy and other German allies. As you might expect, the Anti-Comintern Pact was designed to contain the Soviet Union and counter communist influence globally. During the Spanish Civil War, the USSR sent a relatively small contingent of men to aid the Spanish Republican forces, as well as large amounts of, of equipment. But this paled in comparison to the German and Italian contributions to the nationalist forces. Between the two, they provided over 90,000 troops to the Soviets' 2,000, although Soviet material aid was much closer to par with German and Italian. Reasons for foreign participation were twofold. Spain was an ideological battleground between the right and left-wing forces, with the right-wing nationalists and the left-wing republican forces, and somewhat similar to what we would see in the Cold War, but the war also provided an opportunity to test out new strategies and weapons like tanks and planes to see how they would perform in a true war situation. The Spanish Civil War was a brutal affair and lasted until 1939, with the fascist-backed nationalist forces eventually coming out on top. As German aggression ramped up with increasing territorial demands, Germany realized that war with France and Britain might very well overwhelm the Reich's capacity to make war. In particular, while Germany was an industrial powerhouse, it lacked many of the essential natural resources involved in production. While a prime goal of Hitler's was to make Germany economically self-sufficient, a policy called autarky, it still relied heavily on imports. In case of war with the Western powers, the powerful Royal Navy, not to mention the strength of the French Navy and Army, could completely blockade Germany just as they had done during the First World War, and slowly strangle German factories. So, Germany had to find an overland connection to gain those natural resources, and the resource-rich USSR seemed like a good candidate. But why would the USSR agree to such a deal? 
the two were the fiercest of opponents when it came to ideology, and both recognized that war was quite likely at some point. But for Hitler, pragmatism had to take precedent. In his mind, Germany would certainly deal with the USSR in due course. But for the Soviets, they were no fools either. Some have theorized that the USSR was planning to attack Poland, Germany, or other European powers to spread communism in the years following into the 1940s. This is then confirmed, theoretically possible, but even if the plan exists, it doesn't necessarily mean it was going to happen. Other things, Stalin was expecting an attack from the Nazis in the next few years. In either case, Stalin felt he needed more time before his economic reforms were able to be completed and the military was able to take full advantage of them. So a deal with Hitler that promised peace was seen as a necessary, if distasteful, measure. And not to mention that a deal with the Germans could also offer some more of the industrial machinery and the experience that the Soviets were still somewhat deficient in. Negotiations for such an agreement between the Soviets and the Germans took place during the summer of 1939, as relations between Poland, Britain, Germany, and France reached a critical low point. At the same time, the Western Allies were attempting to conduct talks with the USSR to create a pact that would contain Germany. The Polish distrust over having Soviet troops on Polish soil, although certainly justified, caused these talks to break down on, October, on August 21st. Just two days later, the completed Soviet-German agreement was signed by Soviet Foreign Minister Vyacheslav Molotov and German Foreign Minister Joachim von Ribbentrop, and was thus dubbed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Stunning even the most astute observers, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact publicly declared that there would be no war between the USSR and the Third Reich for ten years, and that neither should aid an enemy of the other. The pact was also associated with an economic agreement by which the USSR would review industrial technology in exchange for raw materials. But the secret protocol of the pact, known to only a select few, was still more shocking. The secret protocol called for a division of Eastern and Central Europe into spheres of influence to be split between Germany and the USSR. Germany would receive Western Poland and Lithuania, while the USSR would receive a free hand in Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Eastern Poland, and receive the German pledge that the USSR could act freely in Romania regarding the territories of Bessarabia and Northern Bukovina, to which the Soviets held claim. With the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact on August 23, 1939, Germany felt the last uncertainty regarding its upcoming invasion of Poland was put to rest, and just over a week later, Germany attacked Poland, sparking the Second World War. The Soviet Union would officially remain neutral in the Second World War until June 22, 1941, although its actions against Poland and its material support for Germany lead many to argue that the USSR was in fact a German ally between the beginning of World War II and the German invasion of the USSR. The first 20 years or so of the Soviet Union's life saw the Bolshevik Party rise from a fringe group to the rulers of the world's largest nation, a colossus of industrial and military power that terrified many of the leaders of the major democracies and capitalist societies. And although Stalin intended to sit out the war and watch the enemies of the Soviet Union bleed each other white, it would not be long until war would come to the USSR. In the next episode of Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East, we look at the war from its beginning in 1939 to June of 1941. After that, we'll start on regular episodes.
As always, my name is Harry Stevens, and if you have advice, complaints, or just comments, email me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Again, that's apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next week.